Viv, and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. Today, I want to welcome Andine Sutarjati, Director of 2164. She is a leader, facilitator, advisor, and capacity builder for next-gen giving, and we can talk more about that later, Um, but I'm especially excited to bring her on because we talk about giving a lot around here, and I recognize that there are generational gaps and other gaps, honestly, that needs to be addressed within philanthropy, so this is a really wonderful learning opportunity, and I'm really excited to have Andine here, so Andine, thank you so much for being here today. And how are things in the 2164 world? Oh my gosh, it is such an honor to be on this podcast. And you're right, you know, I'm really excited to talk about the ways that we fill the gaps in philanthropy when it comes to giving. And how am I feeling or doing today and how 2164 is feeling and doing? (laughs) We're good. You know, it's October right now. um, And it's usually crunch time. For when I work, a lot of individuals are either doing their year-end giving, a lot of families are trying to figure out how to move money out the door. So it's our busiest month, I would say our busiest season of the year, um, but really excited to to have this conversation. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's giving season, it's holiday season, it's yes. year-end. I don't know who came up with <laughs> all of that, like, why is everything in the span of three months? Um But I do want to jump into the name first as an introduction because it's an interesting name and I know it has to do (laughs) with age, but if you could tell us the name and the reason, and like, I really want to hear about how you would describe the mission of 2164. Absolutely. I love this question. It's like a really good icebreaker question, but I feel like I should have a t-shirt for what 2164 is why we're named this way because everyone always asks us why are you named 2164 so i'm gonna step back a little to just to talk a little bit about who we are so we're a nonprofit consulting practice we've been around for 20 years and since our founding really our work has served um, next-gen donors families and the advisors who guide them with their resource allocation so that multiple generations can work give and serve more effectively so the name is really rooted in the North American concept that 21 is the year that most people are either in college, graduating college, really trying to figure out who they are, what's their identity, how do they want to orient themselves in the world. So that early 20-year-old identity formation stage. And 64 in the North American context, I'd like to specify, is the age that you're thinking about your legacy, that you're thinking about retiring perhaps, or that you're really thinking about, wow, I've done so many amazing things in my life. Like what's next for me and how do I communicate my life, my legacy, the world that I want to leave behind to my children and grandchildren. So the 21 and the 64, we sort of operate in the generations of how people orient themselves. And a lot of people joke that due to the fact that people are living much longer, that we should be 2185 because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because as we know, there's there are five generations over the age of 21 these days. And it really isn't about passing the baton. Like we can say in family businesses, there is succession, right? You pass the baton to the next generation, people retire. But we know that giving is forever. 
Giving is lifelong. You don't retire from philanthropy. You don't retire from your generosity. So how do we resource families, individuals who work as a group to allocate their resources, to help them work, give, govern, and serve more effectively, knowing that there are people with various lived experiences of various identities at the giving table together? I love this multi-generational take on philanthropy because I mean, how I've always thought about it before I even stepped into this world was you make your money and then you give it. But, you know, at this point, there are so many people in all generations that either are inherit wealth or have come into wealth through, I don't even know, NFTs. And yes. they're 21 and they're ready yes. to give and they're active. So I do want to talk more about the multi-generational piece and what it means in action and what sets it apart from traditional philanthropy. You know, everyone always asks, like, what does multi-generational mean to you? And to me, multi-generation means honoring the lived experiences of others who came before us, and then also honoring the experiences of those who came after us. It's really building a relationship based on trust and based on having a real curiosity of, wow, when you make decisions, that's because something in your life has impacted you and shape your worldview in a way that is different from mine. Why is that? So coming into conversations, not with judgment, not in saying like, baby boomers are this way because they're X, Y, and Z, but asking the question of like, life must be so different for you. You must have grown up in such a different way than I did. How can we work together given our differences versus in spite of our differences? I think that there is... Now, especially in this new, quote-unquote, racial reckoning that the field is experiencing, there are additional elements in addition to multi-generational identities that we have to think about. We should think about race. We should think about class. A lot of the families that we work with now are starting to have conversations around what does it mean to bring in non-family trustees on the board table if we know that the resources that we're allocating benefit communities that don't look like us? Who are we to make those decisions? And so. In our work, we're starting to see that identity is much bigger than generations. Our work, I think, is on the frontier of now really thinking about how does race play into it? How does racial identity play into it? How does your spiritual identity play into how you give? As people who are coming together for an aligned mission to make the world a better place. So how do we facilitate those conversations in, with the identities and in the bodies and in the lived experiences that we bring to the table? Now, I know you and I have really, I mean, we work at these intersections, but we've also had these conversations. So before we dive in and get too far here, if there are funders or average donors or movement folks, or even people that are new to philanthropy or listening, what, before we get too far, what is the need and the ask from 2164? That's a really great question. I mean, I would come back to just this idea around curiosity versus judgment or curiosity versus a reaction to things. I think the world is becoming a lot more polarized, as we know, than ever before. And I think the sector of philanthropy is also getting a lot more diverse. So my question is, now that we have a lot of different types of lived experiences, a lot of identities at the table, how do we come into conversations with more curiosity? And that is the work that we do here at 2164. And what are the ways that we can 
Alex, I'd say it this way too, like separate data from interpretation and understand that we ourselves are a, a part of that interpretation. So it really starts at, at 2164, I like to say, it starts with self. Like how do we as individuals navigate our own privilege? How do we navigate our own power? Um, and how do we navigate, like how do we understand upon whose shoulders do we stand? And how we got into this space um, in order to create impact together. I think that sounds to me very, as someone who is an intersection of so many identities, where would I even start as a donor? Yeah. So do y'all have practices or workshops or toolkits for that sort of thing? Yeah. Firstly, I'd like to just share a framework that we use at 2164. It's If you can picture it, it's sort of like a philanthropic identity equation that we call it. A lot of times as a funder in the space or even as a professional in the space, the first question that you, that you get asked is, what do you do? Or what issues are you passionate about? Right? And we like to take a step back to ask, what are you inheriting? And who are you? And then who are you is what are the values that you hold? What motivates you for, to be in this room today? And then we get into what are you passionate about? Oh, I get it. It's because you are X, Y, and Z. Is that correct? So we don't like to make assumptions based on what people do or based on um, the type of roles that they play. We like to go a little deeper and we like to start with how did you become the way that you are? You know, what did you experience in your life? I want to understand you as a human first before I understand you as a funder or before I understand you as a grantee. And it really helps to, you know, if philanthropy means love of humanity, like how do we as people connect as humans first and then connect in the roles that we play? Um, that's number one. And number two, we also create these tools. I don't know. A lot of people know 2164 as this organization with these little blue cards, like these value car values cards. And although we are not the first organization to create a values exercise, per se, our values cards have reached over 50,000 people. And we have now digitized it um, because everyone is mostly on Zoom these days. And so we're really thinking about... Um, who can we partner with in this sector? Who can help us? And we're in the process of iterating our all of our tools. So we're really thinking about partnering with individuals who can help us iterate our tools so that it reflects a more wide variety of identities and individuals that are a part of the sector, like a wider representation of who the sector belongs to. Yeah, that's really cool. And as you were talking, my mind just started to go towards why I am in philanthropy. I've been exploring that question more as it's being asked more actually yeah. in the philanthropy world, which is yeah. amazing. And I remember the first form of philanthropy I ever saw was my aunt who owns a restaurant, Ooh. her just providing food right for the community. And in Vietnamese, we called her like Santa Claus because Ooh. she would just, when it was Christmas time, she would give gifts to everybody, all the kids of all the workers that were in the restaurant, the, the Vietnamese community, just everybody would come over and she would have a gift for everybody. And that was, I think, the first form of philanthropy in my life. Yeah. And it inspired me. Um, more recently, I've been exploring like the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam Wars coming up. Mm -hmm. My aunt, my whole family is refugees. Mm -hmm. And the, that whole community was a community of refugees. And 
from the Vietnam War. And I, you know, I feel so more connected to the way that I give. Yeah. Because I, someone asked me that question and now I'm thinking about it as I'm giving. It's more aligned. It's more meaningful and it's more, I'm more committed to this type of giving. And so I love that you sort of reminded me of that because, you know, sometimes you're just doing it, but hearing someone talk about it, I'm like, wow, this is actually happening in real time. Um, So I really, you know, I really appreciate that context. I do want to get a little heavy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We really got into the harm of wealth and philanthropy the last time we spoke. And you mentioned this a little bit, but how does one stand in their power um, Mm. if they're giving or, you know, where they come from directly causes harm? And I know this is a question that a lot of donors grapple with in terms of building and sharing and having wealth. That is a big question. And, you know, I appreciate you bringing it up because I think more people should talk about the different ways that they are mitigating harm or the different ways that we are not just causing harm, but really reckoning with the harm that we're causing. And, you know, I, I use the term harm very seriously because it is something that needs to be um, paid attention to in the sector, in addition to joy, in addition to celebration, in addition to generosity. And, you know, the way that I think about it or the way that 2164 is working on this is that since 2008, we've also started training professionals who work with the donors and who work with next gens um, to help allocate their philanthropy to adopt this multi-generational lens in their practice. And since 2008, we've trained over 2,000 professionals in the sector. And I joined the team in 2018 and realized that there weren't a lot of people of color that we've trained. Like there weren't a lot of black indigenous or people of color trainers we had in our network. And, you know, we did a little bit of rough numbers and and a little bit of reflecting. And it seemed like an estimate, we can only estimate because people self-identify 6% that we've trained or BIPOC identifying. So at 2164, we really wanted to take the responsibility to build a community within 2164 for BIPOC professionals to be able to come together and have conversations around power dynamics with donors. Um, So we started this program called the 2164 Certified Advisors of Color Program. And our vision is to really create a pipeline um, to advance advisors of color in the sector. And our main goal is so that they can work with donors to reallocate their resources towards just and equitable initiatives. Um, As part of this program, we talk a lot about what does it mean to shift power in the conversations that you have with donors. We talk a lot about how to position yourself in a way that serves our community, because we do see ourselves as not just advocates for our communities, but as bridges towards the big money and the big impact that we want to also co-create with our donors. So this program has been such a big undertaking for us at 2164. Uh, We launched it in 2001 and have trained, I would say, 
16 times three, my math isn't good, three cohorts of 16 <laughs> individuals. So it's 48 people is the total number. And we're looking to uh, bring in another cohort next year. So it's deep learning, a year-long experience. We not only train professionals in the multi-generational aspect of the work, but we provide storytelling exercises, uh, workshops. We bring in the op-ed project to help individuals put their thought leadership out there. Because as we know in philanthropy, it's about who you know and how you talk about yourself in addition to what your technical skills are. So yeah, we're really trying to uplift more professionals who are of color, who are in philanthropy and who work directly with donors to allocate their resources um, to feel more empowered in their role. I love that little math that you did. <laughs> um, no, that that is really, really cool. And I I think this is something that we grapple with as, you know, BIPOC experiences and lived experiences are elevated more and people mm-hmm. are checking their privilege more, especially when we're dealing with a class of donors and people who are able to be giving at such a high level. Mm-hmm. I... I actually just saw on Instagram, Check Your Privilege had this post of a white woman who yeah. talked about how she would rush to white saviorism and her white guilt and then just how she was able to check her privilege and sit back and give space. And mm. that was that was a better experience. And I thought that was really interesting because I think in donor spaces now, there are so many tough conversations happening. Yeah. And donors can sometimes feel at odds with the movements that they are trying to fund, trying to help. And so I don't know if 2164 has had that experience and how you're able to help donors feel like they are in community, in the space, but also giving space to people of less wealth. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great question. And I resonate with that question a lot because, you know, in 2020, George Floyd was murdered and our work began to reach families who have generational differences around racial equity, families who have generational differences around politics, or even around what does it mean to have a difficult conversation, a discourse, because there are things that we see, either it's um, when conversations of race happen, either you deflect it, right? Like that's not happening. It's not a part of my life. It's not my reality. You get defensive. Like, how could you think that I'm like that? Or how could you think that uh, this is something that I think about on a daily basis? So we actually run a program called Courageous Conversations on Race and Leadership in response of this Um, the reality that we live in. And, you know, Courageous Conversations on Race and Leadership is a program that we launched to help families, leaders, individuals in philanthropy to stand in their own self-awareness. Like when something jarring happens and when a conversation around race or a difficult topic comes up, the first thing to do is to pause and think about how do I orient in this dynamic? Like, where do I stand? Like, where should I move? How do I begin to understand other people's stories and their lived experiences and, again, come in with curiosity and not judgment? How do I learn to communicate and build trust with others who have historically um, had trust broken 
who have historically been around people who are non-trusting? How do I listen actively and put my own agenda to the side um, with individuals who have been historically unheard? And then how do I have conversations across difference? So people don't understand. And I think what I love about this program is there are steps to getting to the conversation. You know, there is a lot that needs to be done underneath the iceberg. You know, we always see that iceberg metaphor of like the top is like racism and then underneath is like everything else. There's a lot of work also that I think like donors, people, CEOs, like people with positions of power that need to be done before even having that conversation. That conversation is like the end goal is being able to have that conversation. So we at 2164 like to say we work upstream, we work to resource people so that they can get to the conversation. And then once they're there, connect with others in the sector who you know, have more of the expertise around the action-oriented items when it comes to DEI and when it comes to like funding in the racial equity lens or funding in the climate justice lens. Our work really helps to set people up so that they're ready to make that commitment or that so that they're ready to take action. Um, feels very covert work. And um, it's really exciting because I think people not only learn a lot about others, but they learn about their own biases in a way that also teaches them new skills. And do you find that most of, well, I mean, I'm sure most of the donors that come to you are the ones that seek this type of work. Self-selected, yes. Yes, like aligned people. But how do you see this playing out in the greater philanthropy world? I mean, I think after 2020, a lot mm. more people are receptive to this, but there is also mm. a defensive backlash. And yeah. I wonder if the greater donor c- community is actually receptive to this kind of work because it's tedious work. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, we don't make any promises. We don't say that after you're done with this program, you'll be this like amazing communicator, expert in like having conversations. What we do say is that these are techniques that we hope you can add to what you're already working on. This shouldn't be another module or another skill. Like this isn't like woodworking where you like go into a separate room and you craft something and you create something beautiful and you can sell it. No, this is, this should be a part of who you are. Like we hope that this in some way, it informs your identity. It informs how you live. It informs how you give. So what we're saying is we're not thinking about it as a skill or as a tool. It's a behavioral shift and behavioral shifts takes time. So our program is spread out. We do it weekly over a couple of weeks. We provide a lot of ways for people to practice. We host office hours and we also host Zoom unions every six months so that people can talk about, hey, I had this conversation. It went well. It didn't go well. Here's how I could have done it better. So it's really important that we continue to touch base with our participants, not only to keep them accountable, but to say like, you're human. You're going to make mistakes. This is a soft space for you to land on. I wouldn't even say safe. I, I like saying soft. This is a soft place for you to land and for us to continue this conversation. Because I think the toughest things when it comes to these courses is like, what happens next? And it's not transactional. You continue to have to build relationships with us in order for you to improve and with the people in your community. So 
yeah, I, I don't like to make promises or say like, you're going to be so good after this. You're going to be an expert. Come take our course. It really, yeah, it really isn't about selling a product. It is about like, if you think this is important for you and if you think this is going to change the way that you live and give and serve and govern, please come join us on this journey. We'll hold your hand alongside for as long as you want. That's awesome. And I think this is a good moment to celebrate some of the impact that 2164 has been able to achieve. Um, So if y'all have milestones (laughs) or just achievements or just historic wins that we can celebrate today, I would love to take this space and hear about them. Oh, thank you. There's a really big one in a sense that we are in our 20th year of work. So we've been doing this work for two decades which is amazing. And our founder, Sharna Goldsecker, is actually working on a longitudinal study funded by the Joyce and Irving Goldman Family Foundation, where she is interviewing the next-gen donors who we worked with starting 20 years ago and asking them, where are you now? You know, Based on the work that we did 20 years ago or 15-some years ago, what have you continued to do? What are some of the innovative work that you are doing in the sector? And, you know, it's really affirming to know that if you invest on individuals and on groups of leaders who have been historically unheard and who have been historically ignored, like quote unquote young donors in their 20s and 30s, 20 years ago, the change that they make can be incredible. And it's a long game, I think. So now our focus is really working with professionals of color who have historically been unheard, have historically been dispowered in the sector to help advance them and advance their work. So that's number one. Stay tuned for this study and for the paper that we'll we'll start disseminating in 2024. Um, We're also excited to be allied with the Fetzer Institute and the Surna Foundation on the 2164 Certified Advisors of Color program. And our work on courageous conversations on race and leadership is going strong. We're in our third or fourth year now. um, And we're looking to find the right partner to bring it to a broader audience because we know the field is looking for it. And we know that communities might benefit from it too. So yeah. Congratulations on the research and the programming. I mean, I know that's huge. (laughs) Like research (laughs) in the nonprofit and philanthropic world is just so difficult to even nail down. So that's huge. Thank you. You know, I I know we're coming to the end here and I just want to make sure that we can plug your organization and reiterate any call to actions before I close out. Thank you, Vev. Um, We're about to launch our fourth cohort of the Certified Advisors of Color program. So if you know or if anyone who's listening know of or are BIPOC identifying philanthropic advisors or professionals who work directly with donors to move money, please don't hesitate to give me a call or email me and learn more about our program and see if you want to apply. If you're a donor or if you're someone in the sector who is an institutional funder or in the community foundation space, reach out to us to get to know our diverse group of philanthropic facilitators. And then the third thing is we are just really excited to see where the field is going. So my Zoom door or my phone is always open if anyone wants to have a conversation around multi-generational philanthropy on 
filling the gaps in the sector and how we can partner. So those are my my three takeaways or call to action today. And where can we find y'all? You can find us at 2164.net or email me at andine, that's A-N-D-I-N-E at 2164.net. Awesome. And I, you know, I I think you have so much wisdom to share. But if there is like a golden piece of nugget that, you know, you take with you while you're doing this work, what would that be? And something that you would love to share with the listeners? You know, there's this one phrase that I use at 2164 a lot um, that I gained from our executive director, Danielle Orishian York, which is that identity is key to strategy. We talk in philanthropy a lot about Emerging strategies, innovative strategies, new ways to move money, new ways to grant, to do your grant making, your social investing. But if you're not clear with who you are, if you're not clear about your values, if you're not honoring upon whose shoulders you stand or what you're inheriting and reclaiming some parts of that for yourself or letting go of some of these notions that you inherited or that has been ingrained in you, then whatever strategy that's put in front of you, I believe is not going to be sustainable. You're on to the new thing or you're on to the new project. So for us, identity is key to strategy because you as an individual, as a person, you're the one that moves the strategy forward. So how do we help you as an individual quiet the noise? How do we help you be more clear of who you are so that you can be more effective in the sector? So that's, that's what I would say. You know, sharing my story earlier, I think that really resonates yeah. with me currently, because when you were saying, what's the next thing, that was how I was living my life. And in a way, it was effective, but it wasn't, it wasn't as sustainable. So yeah, and I mean, the last data point is there's over 10 million nonprofits in the US alone. So how do you choose? Like, how are you choosing interventions that are aligned with who you are and that are aligned with your values and also aligned with the values of the communities that you want to fund? So my last question for you is a open-ended question, and you might have already answered it in so many ways, but what really has to give for there to be the world that 2164 is seeking? I think the first one has to be what I've said before, it's coming into conversations with curiosity versus judgment. I think there's so much binary thinking in the sector There's so much, this is good, this is bad, this is healthy, this is unhealthy. And we know that there is more than that. There's a spectrum and there is a language that we need to relearn in order to be in honor of all the experiences that are a part of the sector. It's limiting to just say one experience is good and one experience is bad. We have a lot of different adjectives. It can be enriching. It can be frustrating. It can be challenging. It can be helpful, you know? So the first thing is just like, Let's think about curiosity over judgment. And I think the second thing is that when I see an individual, I don't just see the person. I sort of like imagine their family tree or imagine like a road coming out of their head and figuring out like, where is this person coming from? How did this person get here? So my question to the field is, how do we get to know people as humans first? How do I know Viv? as all of who Viv is, in addition to an amazing podcaster and an amazing philanthropic professional, like who are you and how do we connect in that way so that our relationships can be more enriching and we can help each other. Who You'll never know how someone came into the room 
until you ask them. So yeah, be curious and ask those questions. Amazing. And I just want to say it's such a joy to talk to you again. And I'm so grateful to know you. I'm so grateful to know you too. And it's such an honor to be in this space with you and to call you a friend. So thank you so much, Viv. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your community. For more information, head over to our website at thewhatgivesproject.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.